Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words, create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. In the world of entertainment, specifically those who are singer-songwriters, the vast majority do not have top artists record their songs. They don't have number one records or nominations for Grammy Awards or the Hall of Fame. The singer-songwriter's craft is a true labor of love. So when someone does make it big, the success is even sweeter. My guest today is one of these rare souls. While studying journalism from Georgia Southern University, he began performing his original songs in local bands. Almost 40 years ago, he and his wife moved to Nashville, where his unique soulful style got the attention of luminaries in country music like Alan Reynolds and Garth Brooks, who has recorded seven of my guest's songs one of which won Song of the Year at the Academy of Country Music, along with numerous other accolades. He's also had number one records with Patti Loveless, Leroy Parnell, and Clay Walker. Other artists who have recorded his songs include Emmy Lee Harris, Bonnie Raitt, Trisha Yearwood, Dolly Parton, Don Williams, Reben McIntyre, and many more. Garth, American country singer and songwriter, and the number one selling solo artist in U.S. history with 157 million album sales, had this to say about my guest. He has to be one of my favorite songwriters. He's a cat who doesn't care about appearances. He doesn't care about money. He cares about his children, his wife, and his music. That's neat. Meet my friends, my very cool cat friend and Hall of Fame Nashville songwriter, Tony Arata. Tony, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Well, Molly, it's great to see you and great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, this is um, a very big moment for me because we met at none other than Nashville's famed Bluebird Cafe. Again, we must do a huge shout out to my friend and inspiration, Marshall Goldsmith, who somehow Marshall figured yep. out how to get a secure the cafe for an amazing evening of music. It was a wonderful time. Met a lot of good people that day, including yourself, Miss Molly. Well, you and Leslie Satcher and Marv Green lit up this uh, unassuming cafe. And for those unfamiliar with the Bluebird, um, Tony, share a little bit about it so listeners can appreciate how it's really changed music history. Well, I think anybody who, who comes there is probably automatically struck with the fact that they've all heard about it by the time they get to the club. Uh, it's, a, it's a bucket list item for a lot of people who visit there because of everybody, I mean, everybody and their brother has played there, but th that it's in a strip mall, you know, a little strip mall there in, in Nashville. It's not some uh, big palace on a hill. It's just a little, little room seats about 80 to uh, 90 people. And uh, it's always been exactly what it is, which is a, it's been a stage and a forum for songwriters. And it's the, in this town, I, I can't. I mean, the list of people I've, I've seen there is just—it's unending, and it and it goes on to this day. Uh, and they do music seven nights a week, two shows a night, uh, and it's it's just always been the mecca for anybody who um, wants to pursue songwriting. And they—it's kind of like you have to you have to go to the Bluebird first because it's like going to college. You know, you mm -hmm. you have to graduate to this class and then get out of this class and move on. But it's, it's always been, uh, I've been so welcomed there from, for so many years. It, it really feels like they're part of my family. And I, I've had just un, uh, so many memories that have, that are tied to that place and everybody who's played there feels the same way. Um, I mean, it's where, it's where Garth first heard the dance. It's, I mean, we, which happened at a, you know, like an early show. The crazy part about Nashville is I always tell people that <clears throat> unlike a lot of places, you genuinely don't know who might be there listening. And that's certainly true at the Bluebird. 
I played there before where some of my, my heroes were sitting in the audience, unbeknownst to me, but they were there. And then a man who would go on to basically, you know, change my life, Garth, we were just beginning songwriters at the time. But um, he, you know, he was listening. There was nobody, there was very few other people there, but he was listening. And, and that's what you need. Uh, and that's what the Bluebird provides is a, is a chance for someone to be heard. Oh, I love it. Uh, I have to say after that evening, I, my word was I could feel the pure love of music by all of you. It was just pure love. And your friend Garth has noted how you've just really stayed true to that passion, which I don't know is always so easy. So, you know, Tony, take listeners back, uh, share with us how you grew up, you know, how this whole crazy dream uh, as a songwriter came to be. Um, well, I was the last of the uh, the litter, as I say. I'm, I was the youngest child, so all my siblings had moved on when we we moved from Columbia, South Carolina, back to Tybee Island, uh, Georgia, and uh, that's where I. That's really my. Those were my formative years. I was beginning eleventh grade, and it had dawned on me that a career in professional baseball was probably not going to materialize uh, in any way, shape, or form. And, uh, that was the, that was the summer that my brother gave me his old guitar. It was a, probably a $50 Stella. And, uh, I met two things happened. One, he gave me that guitar and two, I discovered that my siblings had left and left all their album collection. You know? And so I had a stereo, a little, you know, self-contained stereo and that guitar and all those wonderful liner notes. And it was an epiphany when it began to dawn on me as I read through the album credits that a lot of the songs I was hearing by these these brilliant artists like Aretha Franklin was singing a song that I couldn't hear enough called Respect. And then I realized she didn't write Respect. A fellow from a hundred miles west of Tybee over in Dalton, Georgia, by the name of Otis Redding wrote that song. And began to make the connection that songs come from people. They don't come from the radio or from albums. And <laughs> for whatever reason, I, I decided, well, it's, you know, it's, you're free to say what you want. And then I just decided I was going to try writing songs. And I did. And, um, and I started learning songs. I always tell anybody that if, there's just no no chance of writing a good song until you've heard a lot of them and read a lot of them, uh, where you know what one looks like and what one sounds like. And I spent that summer listening to music, trying to learn how to play the guitar, and and fancying myself as a as a songwriter. And like with most things that people pick up, the first are really really bad and really rough, but. Uh, you, you can't ever, you know, you can't ever learn to play the piano until you hit a bunch of clunkers and you, you eventually learn where, the, where you're supposed to put your fingers and, and play. And I eventually became adroit enough at the guitar to accompany myself and to understand the, um, the rudiments of chord progression and stuff like that. But more than anything, I, um, I was reminded, you know, I mean, it was, there was always the mantle over my head that I, I was born and raised in a city that gave the world probably one of the greatest lyricists of all time. Johnny Mercer was from Savannah and he's got streets named after him and statues everywhere. And, uh, I fell in love with, with words. And also in the 11th grade, another event happened that changed my life was my English teacher, Sally Scott, uh, put a book in my hands and said, you need to read this. And it was the grapes of wrath by John Steinbeck. And I, I began to realize the power of the written word and the choice of words. And it was, it was, a it was a constant companion of mine. And I, if I had a dollar for every time I read it, I'd be, I'd be rich, but a lot of things came together um, to just direct a, a, a fellow who didn't have any, I didn't have any 
friends. I had left all of them when we moved to Tybee. So the guitar was my friend and music was my friend. And, and, um, I was very blessed to have a, a mom and dad that encouraged me to, to pursue this. There were some caveats. I mean, my mama said that you could do whatever you want, but you're, you're going to make me a promise that you're going to graduate from college. You're going to get a degree in something. And my father said the same thing. He said, I don't care what you do after that. But to them, that was a, that was a, they had somehow managed to put five kids through college and I was going to be no exception. They were going to see to it that I did. And of course, when I got to school, I, I, <laughs> I got out on a, I basically graduated with a courtesy pass because I can't remember really applying myself much to, um, any of the studies I was, that's when I really took off writing songs because I wound up doing some of these, you know, beer joints and coffee shops and stuff like that, where you just go and play. And I was playing original music. I mean, nobody had heard it, but I have enough of an ego when somebody asked me, you know, several, after several appearances to play a song they had heard me do. And I realized they were asking for my song. And then, you know, it's just the further connection that there is a possibility that you can do this. And not, I know, and, and the thought of making a living at it really never crossed my mind. It was just, it was my piece and it was my outlet. It was, it was something that I didn't have to ask anybody's permission to do, to just lock myself in a room with a guitar and, and write a song. And I, I have to say this, and I've said it on many occasions, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I've been very blessed to have had happen to me what has in the songwriting world, but whether it had or hadn't, and if no one knew my songs and we weren't having this conversation, Molly, I know for a fact I'd have the same catalog of songs. I'd have the same number of songs. I'd have the same songs. I, I, I didn't do it with an end in sight. I didn't do it with an ulterior motive. I did it because that's, I think if you write or whatever your passion is, whatever you, whatever brings you peace, I think you do it regardless of accolades or, or, uh, wealth or, you know, making money or fame or fortune. That's just, that's a hollow pursuit because then you're waiting on validation to come from somewhere else. And I think that, uh, true peace is found when you're doing what you enjoy for no other reason other than the fact that uh, it's just something that helps define you and and brings you that peace. And so, uh, oddly enough, the greatest success I had as a songwriter uh, came when I was actually using my degree from college. I wound up lying my way into a job uh, as an editorial assistant at a trade publication there in that that was published in Nashville, writing about buses. I didn't know anything about buses at all, but I, you know, you do what you have to do to get your first job because they couldn't get hardly anything going in the music business. So the, where the worlds collided in that, in those four or five years that I worked for that magazine are just amazing. I, I, I remember <laughs> that's why I say I would have done it regardless. I was still writing songs, even though I was working, you know, 10 hours a day at this magazine. And, uh, I'll, I'll never forget being on an interview with a guy from Detroit diesel, about an engine they were going to be releasing. And the other line on my phone going off, and it was from the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences telling me that my song, The Dance, had been nominated for Grammy Song of the Year. And <laughs> you talk about where your, uh, you know, your loyalties come into play. I, I wound up having to put Naris on hold and, and I finished the interview with Detroit Diesel and wrote the story. Because I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed doing that. I met a lot of people at um, at that magazine that are still lifelong friends that I would have never known had I just done nothing but music. But, uh, it, it was, uh, those years were the reminder to me that, you know, <laughs> 
when Garth called me to come down to see the video for the dance, the, his, the scene three studios was right down the street from where I worked. And I, on my lunch break, I went down there and watched the video for the dance and then came right back to work and sat down at my typewriter and continued work. And the only reason I, I go on about this is because I, I truly mean when I say that I would have done it regardless, I would have written these songs regardless. Uh, I didn't, I've never believed you have to adopt some lifestyle or some persona to be considered a, a songwriter or an artist. And um, um, I, I was very grateful that subsequent successes after the dance allowed me to pursue songwriting full time. And, uh, and that's, that's how, that's how I've made my living for the last, you know, I don't even know how many years now, but uh, <laughs> again, it all comes back to, uh, uh, you know, just being in the right place at the right time. I, you know, wound up in Nashville and, and Garth was one of the first people I ever met. Uh, it, I wish, I wish I, <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I had this all mapped out and planned out and, you know, but if I did, and I really knew how it all came to pass, as I joke, I, I tell people I would do it every Thursday. You know, if it was this simple, then, you know, you would just repeat it over and over again. But so many things have to come into play that are basically out of your control. Um, so I, I don't ever, I still say I'm learning about songwriting because invariably you go out. So that, that kid that was learning how to play the guitar back at Ty, on Tybee Island all those summers ago is the same it's the same old man sitting here saying that i still am amazed that with 12 notes and 26 letters that this world of music continues and every day you turn on the radio and you go oh, lord i wish i'd have thought of that so it's a, it's an ever-evolving process nobody i don't think anybody ever says okay i've arrived i think you're always you know learning if but um, anyway, it's been it's been a wonderful journey, and I've it's given me a life that I would have never I would have never dreamed of when I was back at college, skipping class, that uh, it would ever come to this. Oh, you! I have the biggest smile, and you can see it. And you know, it's it's happening to you for a reason. But you have put it out there in the universe. And when one is that pure to their passion, I don't. I just think you you can't help but happen. For those of us who, um, you know, think that music does come from the radio or an album, um, Tony, where do you, you know, when you're a songwriter and your craft, is it just in your head? Like you're, you just have, just talk about the craft of songwriting, um, maybe how you started, what you learned, you know, how you've honed your, your craft. Well, uh, like I said, I, I listened to a lot of great songs. Um, and by certain writers and you know there's a reason why these songs have lasted all the years that they have i mean you know till i get it right that tammy wynette did i mean that's always been one of the ones that i always listened to and went okay well there's 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 a goal right there that you need to shoot for writing something like that um i, I made the decision early on to um I don't think you can write for success. I think you have to write for the the best idea you have at the time, write the best song you can. Because in the end, if you really want to make a mark, then it it can't be tied to a certain time. It has, they have, these songs are, if they're done well, they'll outlast us. They'll outlast you. And so I never really worried about the radio. I, um, I did an interview earlier uh, this week and I told him I learned a lot by watching people who broke some rules. When we moved here, I, I met a young man who we were just, we were the newbies. We were the kids that just showed up in town and we'd play the open mic shows and there'd be nobody there, but us to be, we'd just be listening to each other. But there was one guy that always, uh, always was there and who was a well-established writer by the name of Kevin Welch. And Kevin has always been a hero of mine because he, he did give of himself 
to the new writers. And I watched Kevin sing his songs and I was, I was just sitting there like with a checklist going, well, that's not how they told me you have to do it. And that's not how they say you got to do it. And Kevin just wrote Kevin songs. And that's when a real light went off that, you you can either try to write a hit or you can write something that means something to you. And chances are, if it means something to you, it, it is a possibility that it'll mean something to somebody else. And, uh, I also learned that, uh, a very important lesson. Somebody said one time, the best thing that could happen to you in Nashville is that you're going to get a song cut. And the worst thing that could happen to you is you're going to get a song cut because you're going to be, you're going to be known for that song. So what do you want it to be? What do you want to be known for? Uh, do you want it to be something that you're really proud of or you're just, you know, it paid a lot of bills for a little while. And so I, watching Kevin sing his songs that were so heartfelt and so real, it was a, it was a, it was a big deal to me and it, it changed a lot of things to this day. I never anticipate anything ever being a, what people would deem a hit. And some of the ones that I've had that were hits were very unlikely. Um, but they were written as real as I could on that day. And it was right after I'd seen Kevin at, at a place called Douglas Corner, um, where he broke every rule. I went home the next morning and I wrote Here I Am, that wound up being a number one song for Patty Loveless. But there again, it wasn't written as a hit. And Emery Gordy, her husband and producer, told me years later that he said, I don't know how this became a hit. He said, because we never even cut it as a single. There were no background vocals on it or anything. It's a very raw recording. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, you're you're proven to be right. You know, I didn't write this because I thought this would be perfect for Patty Loveless. She didn't record it for seven years. She turned it down three or four times. So it was there was no design element here. It was just I wrote the best thing I could on that day. And uh, that, just that's always been my process is that I men know that's why I don't co-write a lot because I'm I'm very slow. I'm very I just I'm no I'm in no rush to finish a song. I mean, they're they're like friends that you get to hang out with for a while. And so, um, I mean, the dance was turned down by everybody and their brother for three years. So, but Garth had heard it long before that, but there again, I didn't, I didn't know what I was. I didn't know that I was writing a hit. I, I was just writing a song. And, uh, so that's always been the only process I've ever brought to bear. Um, as far as an actual format um, element, I, I when I do co-write, I like I, I love working with uh, piano players because they come at they come at music completely differently. I mean, a C chord sounds completely different on a piano than it does on a, a guitar. It's um, it can be voiced in so many different ways. So that sparks uh, a different part of the you know the the mind. And also, <laughs> this is in no way a comparison. I'm just saying that part of my studies of of great songs was uh, a guy from my hometown, Johnny Mercer, who wrote a lot with Henry Mancini and gave the world things like Moon River, you know, and uh, which I fished on with my youngest daughter, by the way. That was a that was a real memory. Uh, but where somebody wrote the words and somebody wrote the music and there was no real, wasn't really co-writing. It was co-composing where this lyric is this lyric and this melody is this melody and they meld them together. And if, when that comes together, you have 200% of something, you have a hundred percent melody and a hundred percent lyric. And there's been no, there's been no, uh, watering down of the, of the two. So, uh, I, I enjoy that aspect. Plus the fact you can, you're not wasting somebody's time. They can give you a melody or you can give them a lyric and they can write, you know, something to it. And if you don't like it or they don't like your lyric, nobody's lost anything. Uh, the whole co-writing thing was just a bit foreign to me 
when I moved to Nashville because most of the people that I, I I listened to that summer all those you know years ago were wrote a lot of the songs by themselves. Otis Redding did, James Taylor did, Bob Dylan did, Jimmy Webb did. You know, they, these were all individual rights. I mean, they wrote the music and the and the words. They didn't they didn't co-write with anybody. Um. So, and there again, if I had, if I knew exactly the formula to bring to bear every time I sat down with a guitar or a piece of paper, I, I'd do that. But it just doesn't work that way. Tony, how? It's a like, Sorry. No, I was going to say you're, you know, you're so in the process. You're so not tied to the outcome. Okay, so when you think about athletes or or any, that's not easy to do. So, um, what what? What is disappointing? Like, what's a struggle as you're going through? I mean, it just comes across so joyous. You know, here I'm writing in a pure thing to be the best song that I can be this day. You know, it just seems too good to be true. So is, you know, what's hard, what has been hard, or maybe nothing's been hard about it. And Oh, they're plenty <laughs> hard. Uh, well, when you, when you go, uh, when you know in your heart of hearts, I think anybody that thinks that only my mama thought everything I wrote was great. And other than that, the rest of the world doesn't feel that way. But when you know that this is as good as you can do and it can't find a home, it can't be accepted, that's very hard because, um, because when you bring into that, that element that this is very personal to me, this is, this is the best I can do, and I did it for that reason. But I sure would love for somebody it'd be really great to get some validation, you know, out of songs that you go, I, I, y'all are waiting around for me to do better than this. And you're going to be waiting a while. Cause I, this may be is, this is the best I could do with this, this topic and this, and on this day. So yes, it's very, it's very hurtful. I mean, it, it it's like, um, you know, you, you want your children to be accepted. You don't want them to be, you know, rejected. And so there is that element. Trust me, I, I have enough of an ego to where it hurts when somebody passes on a song that they've held or that you thought would be perfect for them, you know, after you found out. So, yeah, there's a lot of disappointment. The only the only advantage <laughs> is the longer you do it, the thicker your skin gets. And you just, you, you know, I, no is the word you hear more than anything else in this business. So if you're going to get upset over that, it's probably not the business for you. It's just they're going to reject. And it is a rejection on a very personal level at that point, because this is something you're you created that you're proud of and you can't get anybody to like it. So that, that's very hard to deal with. But I've always believed I've always described that little bitty word yet. You know, um, they don't like it yet, but maybe someday they will find a home. And uh, in the meantime, you just have to uh, top it up a little bit and just keep going. That's amazing. Take us back, Georgia, this uh, dynamic duo that you are with Jamie. How did you meet and take us through how you actually, it wasn't exactly in the grand plan to get to Nashville, as I understand. No, um, Jamie and I went to high school together. And we went to college together, but we never dated. And um, I had my heart broke very, very hard, uh, devastating about my second year in college. And uh, you, you begin to think, well, life as you expected it to go is over. Well, you fast forward uh, a couple of years and Jamie came to visit my mama uh down at tabby and i had just gotten home from college and i opened the door and i and it dawned on me i said i've known this girl for a long long time i i've never i've never asked her out and so i worked up the courage to ask her out she was such a such a, a beautiful nice intelligent woman and uh, uh i like i said got the guts to do it and that was June 27th, 1980, when she showed up at my mama's daddy's house down on Tybee. And we've been together ever since. 
Um, and I know for a fact, Molly, that nothing, nothing would have ever come. We wouldn't be having this conversation had it not been for her showing up on that day and me mustering the strength to ask her out. Um, and we, you know, when we first got to Nashville, she, um, I mean, she's the brains of the outfit to say the least. And she was able to get a job and keep the lights on long enough for me to hopefully get something going. Uh, but you know, how we got here <laughs> was, uh, it was pretty interesting because I came home from band practice in Savannah to our little apartment there in Thunderbolt. And, uh, my landlord was sitting on the stoop. We had just been married two years. And he said, I need to see your apartment before you leave. And I, I asked, where, where are we going? And he said, well, your wife called and gave 30 days notice and said she's moving to Nashville. And I asked the next relevant question, which did she mention that I was going with her? Or, I mean, is she just moving up there? So uh, 30 days later, we were Nashvilleians. Uh, and that's <laughs> that story may seem a bit odd, but it's actually probably the story of about 90 percent of the people who show up here is that somebody believes in somebody enough to say, well, this is what we've got to do and we're going to go do it. And, uh, and that's how that's how we got here. And I mean, she, we have two two beautiful, brilliant uh, daughters. They're both fiercely intelligent and, and just good people. I've always <laughs> She gave me those too. Um, and I've always said it's you're honor bound to love your children, but there's comes that moment when you realize how much you like them as people, that it's, that's really the, the beautiful part of, of life. And I just enjoy their company and I can't imagine. And without Jamie there again, that's just another thing I would have had foregone. Might've had other kids, but I wouldn't have had my kids. I wouldn't have had our kids. And uh, I'm just grateful for that as well. But she hasn't thrown me out yet. Yeah. So stay on the parenting topic. I am um, wondering how you might describe how parenting helped you grow. Well, I had, I had, you know, my mom and dad were from a completely different generation. I mean, I talk to people now and, you know, when you, you mentioned that Woodrow Wilson was president when my mom and dad were born. You know, it's like, what? I mean, that's just, that's just right around the turn of the last century. It's not far from there, not far removed at all. So they were, and they were very old when they had me. Uh, they were in their forties when they had me. Um, but they were the, they were the best. I mean, they truly were my father. I don't know how he did it. Don't have any, don't have a clue how he managed to pay for all he did. I never went without anything ever. We didn't, it's not like we lived in an opulent lifestyle, but we, I never remember, I never went hungry. I never, I never had anything like that. And I had a mama that literally was as close to a saint as you could hope to have and, or ever get to know. She was just a, the best, the most well-read individual I've ever known. And my mama probably had a fifth grade education and my daddy had a third grade education. And uh, they they were, I couldn't ask, I mean, you couldn't get better role models. You couldn't have a better education than those two. And uh, I learned something very important that came into play with our kids, our, our two daughters, is when we, we had children, it was, we never said, this is what you will, you are going to, you know, you need to do this or, you know, you need to do this to get ahead or don't even think about that profession. <laughs> they, we just encourage them to do their, as my mom and daddy did, just you do the best you can with whatever you choose to do. And now they're both, you know, very prominent in their, their respective positions and, and work. And uh, my oldest girl works for uh, a law foundation. She's not a lawyer, but she's um, she's um, director of development for them. And our youngest daughter works for Vanderbilt 
medical here and uh, she's not a clinician she but she she runs a very important program that they do in public health and uh, there <laughs> I'll tell you this Molly I think they're mine I that's all I, I'm gonna leave it at that because uh they're definitely their mom uh, but they're they're a lot smarter than I I could ever hope to be and uh, I love them dearly that is such a blessing. The as you were the the last of the litter, as you say, talk about your relationship with siblings. And as you were in your music career, I mean, they must someone must have been like, "Good thing I gave you that guitar." <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you one thing. You know what it was? It was a, it was it was wonderful because other than my mom, no, I never got you know major accolades from my siblings after we started having some success and uh, I'll always remember my brother used to rib me really good because we'd go to visit them in Atlanta and Damien and I would show up and he'd always greet us at the door yelling at one of his boys to go find Uncle Tony's uh, album he's probably underneath a plant somewhere and I mean they they were a grounding force I looked up to them far more than they you know they ever you know uh, knew probably they're all teachers uh my oldest sister was a uh, she taught kindergarten my then i had twin sisters and one taught third and the other taught eighth grade and then my brother uh was a uh was in special education his entire life um so we, there was four teachers and me. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I always joke, I said, you know, well, maybe, uh, little brother got lucky on a couple of occasions, but I, I always reminded him of how many people they had taught to read. And that in itself is humbling, but I, I, I yeah, we were very, I was very lucky to have a wonderful, wonderful family. It truly was. Let's get back to this, the songwriting. I, um, I'm just, just the, when you, are you writing by hand, you see something happening? Like, where do you get your inspiration? I, I'm, I'm really curious. How does this process go on? Well, I joked with people for a long time. They said, where do you get your inspiration? I would tell them tuition, uh, you know, college tuition is a, a great motivator. Uh, but in all honesty, um, uh, I think if you if you write, you, you're always looking for something. You're always looking, or somebody will say something and it'll have a twist to it. Or um, for me, it's always been about. It's always been the lyrics were the main objective because I'm I'm a marginal guitar player at best. Uh, so music, I'm never going to wow anybody with my with my guitar skills, but lyrics are totally in your control. And, um, I love nothing more than walking around with an idea that I know is going to lead somewhere and then just not being in that rush to get it done. Just uh, obviously writing is far more than sitting down and filling up a page. I mean, any writer worth their salt could write you a song on the spot if they had to, it's not to say it's going to be anything you'd ever want to hear again, but they could do it. They could get the fundamentals down on the page, but that'd be about it. And um, so the process for me is is just a slow process of just letting the idea germinate. I, I did a CD. Uh, I, I may have given you one. I don't know, but I um, it's called Getting Older, and that song is that's one of my one of the my favorite compositions I ever you know was present when it came through. Uh, uh, but I literally walked around with that lyric for a year. I mean, I, I, the lines came very slowly and I was in no rush. And, and when I go back and read those lyrics now, they, they really do stand up because they were, they weren't, they weren't conceived of to, so that one would rhyme with a line before it. They were written to, so that every, every line was critical and there again you know all that being said no one's recorded the song yet 
but it's still one I do every night that I play. And it's, it's one that I, it means a lot to me. And, and it's, it was another reminder to me that, um, do it for the right reasons or or really is no, don't do it at all. Um, do you, do you run things by people for feedback? Is it, or is it just an individual? Like, I just know this is it. I'm just, I'm wondering. Well, you know, <clears throat> I, I've run things by Jamie before after, after the fact, you know, when it was finished and I mean, she's very honest. I mean, it's like, don't do that again. You know, it's like, that's, you know, that's, that sounds, that's, it's embarrassing. And, uh, man, invariably she's right. It's like, these were songs that were written, you know, thinking it uh, might be a, that might be a good hook or it might be a clever or something like that. And so that's what you came up with. Uh, but no, I don't. And since I don't co-write anything, I, I, I very rarely co-write. Um, I don't, I don't really run it by, you know, anything by somebody to see if they think it's a good idea. Uh, maybe I should, maybe I'd have a, <laughs> maybe Molly, you may be on to something. Maybe I'd have a greater success rate, but, um, you know, the one thing I, I learned, I don't even know who said it. I don't know if it was Tom T hall or one of the great writers I've read somewhere. They said they don't ever write anything down. They, until it's done, you know, they, because the the point being, if it's not worth remembering, you know, writing it down isn't going to make it more memorable. It's just going to be written down. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I, for the, I, I mean, it's a great way to write too, because then you're really getting to know the song. And just because they, just because the lines fit on a page or they fit in meter on a on a page, that they're actually cohesive when sung and you know it's like anybody who writes speeches doesn't write a computer they they read their speech that's what they were meant to be and so you you get to see the entire format when you write the song from top to bottom before you ever commit any of it to paper and and then you know now back in the day i i I wrote stuff down thankfully um (laughs) it's interesting one of the few things good to come out of COVID was I'd, I'd done a bunch of interviews before and they invariably, everybody always wants to know, well, you've got the original lyric to the dance. And well, like what I just told you, I, I never wrote anything down. I, I didn't, I didn't even remember. I, I, I couldn't remember ever writing it down. Well, we had a lot of time on our hands. Uh, and so we went through a bunch of stuff that we've, hauled around for all these years of marriage and out of the attic and you know and <laughs> there it was there was the original handwritten lyric with the edits and to the dance and to here i am um so I, if that that was one of the few good things that came out of it was to actually being proven wrong that I had written it down and I do possess the, you know, those original lyrics. I'm glad I do because, um, they're, you know, it's so weird to hold them and go after all the years and all the memories uh, that have resulted as a result of this, whatever time it took to scribble these things down on a piece of paper. Uh, it never escapes me. So, uh, I think I think the immediacy of computers and phones and things like that is a, is is obviously it's had its impact, but there's still something just about the the age old pen and paper that you know it's hard to beat. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, you're you can't help but be grounded. You're just you're just so grounded. And then in this business you know, it's a brutal business. I could imagine, right. People are trying to make a living and get to top sure. some charts enough. So just talk to folks about the business, the learning and business that you had, Tony, and maybe how you, you know, how, how you found a way to coexist with it so well. Well, you know, I'll tell you one thing is I, I, I've noticed that as competitive as it is amongst 
your friends, you're always great. They're always happy when success finds them. That's just always, that's still a hallmark of this town that everybody's competing for the same 10 slots on a record. But, you know, when you, when you, you hear a great song done by your friends, that's, that's, that's great too. As far as the business to anyone who ever, you know, decided they wanted to pursue this, I, all the things you hear about that you go, Oh, I don't need to worry about that. Yeah, you do. You, you need to worry about always having someone explain to you. Copyrights are long things. They're, they're long, long, you're talking years and years, decades. And so you, to anyone, I would, I would encourage anybody who ever, you know, it's worth speaking with someone to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And also, that you're uh, that you're okay with what you're doing and have someone explain it to you. I mean, I, I'm I'm a very trusting individual, and I was you know you you get so enthralled that somebody is excited about one of your songs. You know, there's no telling what you can do. So that aspect of the business, there is a business that needs to be addressed, and and it also, as with any business, the the main thing is to get around people you trust and admire and and you know feel comfortable with. Um, just because it's the biggest publishing house on the block doesn't mean it's necessarily the most, you know, uh, above board. Or uh, obviously, they, those big buildings weren't paid for by you know them giving more than they got. So um, there is that aspect of it, and you do learn over time. And I have, and I've made every mistake that could be made, and and hopefully you learn from those mistakes. But um, uh, it's 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 really in that at when when you get into that arena, it's exactly the same as every other business that you you need to know full well what it is you're you're signing on for and and engaging in because um, as I said, as with all contracts, they have a long long shelf life. So that aspect evidence had to be looked after and, um, and you learn over time, but I, um, you know, it's also one of those things where, you know, you spend the bulk of your life, you know, never confronting any of that, you know, and I, I did learn early on in Nashville. What's great about it is the fact that it is, it's still a small town and, you know, you're not going to last long in this business being unscrupulous. You're just not, I mean, it's words going to get around pretty quick. So everybody operates with a level of decorum and, and that I've, I've noticed and uh, people want the right things to happen because, you know, it's just, it's better for everybody. Don't know much about copyright law, but I'm, I'm learning. And, uh, this is a very important aspect of it to, to pay attention to, to anyone who ever wants to pursue this. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, assuming you exactly where you are, do you have, would you share um, a regret or I call it a do over um, that you have? Well, I guess the only thing I would say is that I would have spent more time maybe just realizing these were one of a kind moments. I mean, you, you're busy living life. You don't, sometimes you just don't, you just don't take it all in as, as you should. I wish that I had, I wish I'd have spent more time really realizing what was going on in, in the moment. Uh, one case in point, I mean, this is, this is what I'm talking about. It's in retrospect, but that I really realized how, how monumental this was at the moment I was just in it. But now in retrospect, you go, wow. I mean, when, when the dance was nominated for a Grammy and Jamie and I got to go to New York, um, a gentleman just passed away who was the, you know, an American voice, the, uh, a world voice, Tony Bennett. And at the Grammys, he was nominated for best jazz performance. And I was, I was nominated for best country song. And I, it, was, it was such a surreal moment. And those are the moments I wish I'd have just paid a little bit more attention to really 
taking the time to just realize how surreal it all was. So anyway, uh, when he passed, I'll always remember standing in the Hilton ballroom with the Count Basie Orchestra playing. I had just danced with my wife, Jamie, at the top of Rockefeller Center, you know, in the, in the rainbow room. And in strolls Tony Bennett. And I said, I never do this. Never, never do it. I never bother anybody, but I said, can't do it. Gonna have to go bother Tony. Gonna, gonna have to go introduce myself to him. And so I walked over and he's just standing there alone. And I stuck out my hand. I said, I'm Tony Arada from Nashville, Tennessee. And he says, Arada. And he goes, Bazan. You know, it's like he recognized the Italian last name and he, he stuck out his hand. We shook hands and he, um, he said, so Tony, what brings you to Nashville? I mean, to New York. And I said, well, I, I was nominated for a Grammy. And he said, did you win? And I said, no. He said, well, I didn't either. Let's go get a drink. And I got to have a drink with Tony Bennett because we both lost at the Grammys. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was, those are the moments that I, you know, I'm glad now you, you sit back and you look at him and you go, in that moment, I don't know how much I was paying attention to how surreal that all was. Uh, and, and so that would be a, a do-over. I'd, I'd spend a little more time saying thank you uh, for those moments. Oh, well, you've been blessed with so many. Um, just a couple more questions. You have, you know, you're, I can see you're continuing to push your student of your music. Share with listeners some areas of growth that you have for yourself. Um. You know, a lot of I, a lot of people, uh, and I, I got lost in it for a while trying to learn the technology side of the, the the tracks where you where you can make your own demos and things like that. And they spent a lot an inordinate amount of time getting mics right and things things. And it, you know, I've gotten more and more away from all you know whatever technology I ever delved into. And getting back to just the the rudiments, so, you know, the, of just writing very organically in terms of, you know, you, you sit down with a pen and paper and your guitar or, or an idea, and there's 50,000 people in this town that can get something down on tape. So any time wasted on learning, you know, how to record it is kind of, kind of a wasted uh, effort. And uh, so I guess it's just uh, it's it's more a devolving back to your roots. You know, it's just where you you lay everything aside except what ultimately matters, which is the the idea, the lyric, and the melody. I mean, it's so spending much more time concentrating on that and rather than. I wonder what it's going to sound like if I do this, you know, in terms of recording it uh, for, you know, for somebody else to hear it. And there's always something to learn. There's always just turn on the radio or go buy an album. There's always something to learn. Uh, like I said, I, it, it never fails that I'll, you'll hear something and go, my gosh, you know, why didn't I why, I mean, it's so obvious. And that really is the essence of a great song is it's, it's not E equals MC squared. That's not what you're trying to get to. You're trying to get to that universal, uh, that, that uh, feeling that everybody's either lived in or through where everybody identifies with it immediately. It's like, yeah, I know how this story goes. I lived it. So you're really just telling the same joke over and over and over again. You're just coming at it from different angles. And, but when you have a, when you have something that really is something everybody can identify with, then the, the, the real task for a writer is to tell that story again, that everybody knows the ending, everybody knows how it goes, but it's just telling that story completely differently. And then then that's what it makes it a really interesting song. I, one of the examples I've always used was, I wish I had written this one. 
The House That Built Me that Tom Douglas and, and Alan Shamblin wrote, two buddies of mine. You know, again, that, that song met resistance for almost a decade before anybody cut it. But everybody knows what that song's about. I mean, you can't go home again. It even starts with that line. Uh, but the way they tell the story where it's the house that built me, you know, it's just a, a slight little twist on it. But it's so innocent and so pure that everybody got it. It's not a it's not a monumental idea. It's just a monumental approach. And that's really the essence of writing, I think. Wisest of words ever. I'll be listening with a whole new appreciation. Um, Tony, we could go on and on. Just close with us and share for listeners what it was like to um, tell us your story today. Well, well, one, (laughs) you know, I've said about, uh, and I say it every time when I play the dance, I I always say that if, uh, if not for that song, you start eliminating the people I would have met as a result of it. And so just getting the chance to have another friend in this world, that's what, you know, that's what this has meant to me. Uh, I, I've, I'd never met you before you all came to that, that show at the Bluebird. And now I have a friend over there in where you said, I think you're in Raleigh, you know, over in North Carolina. Uh, and I, so that's been, that's what it means to me. It, it means being able to, uh, share with everybody that I, 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 if nothing else, I do know how grateful I am. I do know how lucky I've been. I know how blessed I've been. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm always glad to, to tell that. So thank you for the opportunity, Molly. Well, it has been my pleasure. You and your epic journey really warm my heart. I want to sing. Don't worry. I'm not going to sing. I really appreciate <laughs> all that you shared. I'm I'm in awe. I have a very permanent image of you at the Bluebirds swimming away, jamming away. It's a really, uh, Tony, it's a really beautiful thing to witness um, when someone loves what they do and, and is great at it. And then by doing it, you just, you know, put love in the air. So I want to congratulate well, you. Thank you. You stayed true to yourself, your family, your music. Um, and I'm here for you. Not that you need it, but if I can be helpful any little way, let me know. And um, hopefully I'll cro- our paths will cross soon. So I'm cheering for you, Tony. Thank you very much, Molly. And thank you for your kindness. Ah, folks, it just is the best. Um, okay. A thought that comes from Tony, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And that is a wrap folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Tony's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. 
Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.